Chief Miller is dedicated to featuring the men and women of the fire service from around the world. Chief Miller has a family of content creators who feature great people doing great things, making the fire service a better place. Make sure to follow along as Chief Miller creates, shares, collaborates, and features the special people who call themselves firefighters. Follow along on Instagram at Chief underscore Miller. Find him on Twitter at Chief underscore Miller underscore. Like him on Facebook at Chief underscore Miller number one. And watch for all the podcasts featured within the Chief Miller media family. Make sure to check out ChiefMillerApparel.com for all your fire service apparel needs. Hey, canners, it's time for 30 minutes of unadulterated and uncensored shenanigans. Get ready to call HR because you're going to need sensitivity training after this. Gear up because it's going to hurt worse than writ training in July. Welcome to the Can Man Radio Show with your host, Jason Liska. And yet again, we're back with another episode of the Can Man Radio Show, sitting here today in Daytona Beach, Florida for Fire Rescue East 2020. It's been an amazing week sitting on the command team for this event and uh, got a really special guest this uh, evening on this installment of the show. And I'm going to tell you something, this week is uh, it's kind of inspired me to do a series of uh, podcasts regarding mental health awareness. And my guest this evening not only stood up for firefighters across the state of Florida, really for across the nation when you think about the impact that he made with his walk. And by saying that alone, you should probably know who I'm sitting with, the great Tom Bull Hill. <laughs> you you know, you tough. laugh. It, no, but you know, I'm going to tell you something, brother. It's a true blessing, number one, to have you down here this week and being able to share your experience, your packs that you bring in. I mean, you started with how many packs when one. you started your walk? Where are we at now? Whew, probably close to 14 at least. Plus, I have bags of, of items that I need to put on more packs. Yeah. So. Every time you accumulate one. You start adding more. A new uh, pack adds more. It's it's uh, it's very uh, sobering the amount of firefighters I'm finding out in the last year and a half that are, are taking their own lives. And that's a whole other perspective we're Can- going to talk yeah, about. Cancer was bad. Yeah. This is just breaking my heart. We're going to get to that. Okay. we got to start with you, though. And I want to talk about... <clears throat> Tom Bull, because everything you're going to share with us this evening is going to lead to where we're going to with your involvement in mental health awareness and what you're doing with the Firehood Foundation, which is something that is now new and dear and near and dear to your heart, which is a, a, a movement you're building, a program you're building to help firefighters. But we really got to get to the meat and potatoes about you, Bull. We got okay. to talk about what brought you to this point. So let's talk about the early days of Bull. The early days? Let's talk about the days, your formidable years. Oh, well, I don't even know if you would call those formidable, uh, raised an alcoholic family. Uh, I'll start with telling you that I love, uh, my parents are both passed away, but I love them both dearly. Okay. And I truly believe to, the, to this day that 
they did the best they could have done. Okay. Um, but getting to that, I had a real hatred for my dad up until probably my 40s. Being born in the 50s, uh, we didn't show a lot of emotions. Um, you mentioned the John Wayne era back then. Yeah, you know, John Wayne was the man, so what did people say? It's John Wayne time, meaning yeah. you dug in and did whatever you had to do to make it work. Um, my uh, my dad, uh, tell you the truth, he died in, when I was, shit, I think I was 38, 39, and never saw him sober one day in my life. Wow. Um, my mom, on the other hand, you know, she was more of the angel. She was a good lady, but she was that lady that would stick behind him no matter what. If he was choking me, if he was putting his foot up my ass, throwing me out of the house, she never talked back to him. She was loyal to her man. She was loyal to her man, and she'd apologize later. And that was the era back then, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was very little in the home life that a woman would stand out against. No. You know, she was loyal to the husband, to the man who provided for her and the comfort, and she would act as a servant to the man yeah. back then. So a lot of things, you're probably not the only child, I'm sure, oh, that went through no. that. There's got to be tons of us out there. I mean, one, you know, I'll mention it sometimes when I'm talking to folks, you know, when you're raised in that kind of environment, you learn to duck a yeah. lot. You learn to look over your back. If uh, somebody's voice raises, you jump. Um, it's not like the normal human being that gets through the day without jumping, worrying, looking over their back. I mean, I did it constantly until in my 40s and then, I got some help and it went away. Um, but with that saying, um, there's a lot of things that I got into. I was actually one of those pretty good kids where I never drank. Mm -hmm. um, didn't have sex. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. You know, I was that Catholic boy <laughs> that said, you know what, I understand what they're saying. Yeah. And I'm going to try to hold off until I get married. So good I for did you. good till college. Were you an altar boy? Alter Boy too. Oh in my lord! In fact, they were talking about sending me to the seminary, but that's another story. Um, Father so Bull. I tried to do the right things, and then, uh, speaking of which, they'd send me to the rectory every now and then. And I wasn't I wasn't too young. It started when I was young, and then probably up to almost high school, uh, got raped. I think it was three times. Can't remember everything. Okay. When I went to treatment. Um, they knew something went on because they told me to to write a letter to my dad and someone else and I said fuck him he's dead and then wow they learned that uh, I had to go through hyp hypnotherapy or whatever mm -hmm. it was mm -hmm. and as I was telling you earlier I had really forgotten about this um, but my ex-wife was talking about since I've been doing the suicide stuff she said could we do a, a Facebook live so I could share signs and symptoms with other spouses? Which to me is perfect because they know us better than the guys we work with a lot of times and they see us when we start acting strange. Absolutely. So she started going into stuff when I finally went to get treatment. I thought it was just alcoholism. And the first week I was there, they said, Bull, um, you may be an alcoholic, but you damn sure are suffering from severe trauma exposure. Mm -hmm. And I said, what the fuck is that? 
41 years old. What the fuck are you talking about? I'm fine. Yeah. And they said, well, with that answer there, kind of tells us more. And uh, I said, that's what soldiers get. This was back in 2001. And they said, we've done studies for years. Firefighters are worse than soldiers because they're around it more often, more repetitive, and for years. 25 years old. Talk about that year in your life when you realized you fell in love with alcohol. Uh, the first time I drank, I was off to the races. Now, understand, um, I didn't drink at all. I used to be the guy that drove people home from the high school parties, throw mm-hmm. them in the shower, sober them up. Uh, being raised around that, I wasn't going to do it. So it was, it was, I'm sorry, I'm going to take that back. I was 22. 22. I was still in college. Okay. My second year, third year, some guys took me out, and I said, you know what, I'm going to try beer. And what happened was the first one I could barely get down because of the taste. The yeah. second one was euphoric. The third one, I liked bull. See, up until that time, I didn't like me. Mm-hmm. I might say, yeah, I like me, but I hated my fucking guts. Okay. You know, there was nothing about me I liked, so I tried to overachieve everything so I'd fit in. That's my thinking. Okay. And my thinking then was every kid goes to this. Every kid goes to their dad trying to choke him. You know, not, when not my dad true. put his, the second time he did, he said, I'd kill you if I could. And he broke down the door and put his hands on my neck. And I said, please. And he fucking quit. You were ready to give up at that point, though. Well, what else are you going to do? The man you admire wants to kill you. He was huge. You know, yeah. he was 270, 300 pounds, 6'4". It's like I just wanted him to like me. So <clears throat> so about the third beer, I swear I looked around and I could talk to women. You felt confident at I that I was point. confident. And I liked me. Okay. So I continued to drink that night. And it's funny, the guys, all, the guys that were with me walked me home. And at that time, I was in a bunk bed on a terrazzo concrete floor. Yeah. No rugs. I woke up the next morning on the floor, face first. My nose was sideways. I had a bruise above one eye. It was black and blue, bleeding. And as I said, my first thought wasn't, boy, I really fucked up. It was, holy Christ, when can I do that again? And that kept when going. When can I do that again? That feeling, I never felt it. It was spiritual. And when did you keep going at it? You just kept going Kept from going there. until I was 41. So every day. So another 20 years. Another 20 years of your life. So that's 20 years of uh, drinking. Uh, I can say that I never was uh, drank. I never drank when I was on duty. Mm-hmm. I'd come to work after drinking till 4, 5, 6 in the morning and be at work at 7.30, though. You touched on something and your career. You never let it affect your career. No, it affected it. I just didn't do it well, on the job. It never was done on the job, but let's talk about the impact it had at home. Because you said your wife wanted to sit with you and talk to you. Earlier, you mentioned some of that revolved around your drinking. Yeah. I mean, it started out as, as, uh, like she'd say, I was the fun guy, the life of the party. And then it got to where I'd say I'm coming home from work. This is 7.38 in the morning. I'm coming home. She has a day off. 
stop and get groceries, grab a six pack, start drinking it, and I'd be gone for two or three days. Oh. A lot of times I didn't know where I was. What has she told you, finally, how that made her feel as a spouse? Uh, actually, the, she just sent me an email today because she wanted me to look at it. It was sad. She said, you know, she takes a lot of the blame to this day because she thought it was all about me. She thought it was just a drinking problem. And mm -hmm. then when they did the hypnosis, she was there and she saw me trying to talk under hypnosis about being raped. That yeah. was just one time. Yeah. And she goes, I blacked out while I was telling the story. Um, she said she couldn't listen to it when I said, guy grabbed my head and pushed my face against his genitals. Mm -hmm. um, and she said what she noticed, too, was that when she would yell at me, this is through our marriage, get bad and yell, my face, my eyes would glaze over. And she always thought I was ignoring her. But what she found out, it was a response to a lot of trauma growing up that your body automatically protects itself. I didn't know it. I was dumb to all this. I'm 15 years on the fire service and I didn't know any of this shit. You thought you were invincible too then, didn't you? I quit going to funerals. Yeah. Um, hmm, I had survivor's guilt. Uh, we lost two firemen and I think it was 89 and I called in to work sick the day we lost them. Really? That night, my lieutenant had called me and said, thank God you called in sick because you were floating to Station 36. Where 36 they came from. 36 is where they died. Yeah. 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 Uh, we talk about that call. Um, it comes up in discussion in classes. We talk uh, about NIOSH reports, and we talk about the brothers we lost in that incident and the changes that came <sighs> from that. Yeah, yeah. I, sh I, uh, I was supposed to be there that day. And so I went to Todd and Mark's funeral, and I started tearing up. And I felt this emotion inside of me that I thought was weakness. I started crying. And I left there saying, I'll never fucking go to another fireman's funeral again because I will lose my edge if I feel this way. That's how serious I took the job. Because it was something I found out that I was accepted in. Mm -hmm. These guys would look up to me. Mm -hmm. They treated me good. But I had that mentality where if I'm going to die, I'm going to die on the job. You were ready? I, I wanted to. Yeah. My lieutenant twice before I got help said, I don't know if you got a death wish or what. He goes, but I'm going to ban you from going into fires if you don't fucking start doing what you're supposed to do. How did that resonate with you? I didn't care. You didn't give a shit? Because I knew he wouldn't do it. You know, I had, at that point, I had pulled seven people out of house fires. Wow. Seven people in 12 years. Some people never even get one. Get one. You had seven. Seven. So trying to end it all, you know, it wasn't that I went out there on purpose to do it, but if it was one of those days where I had some bad memories, it's like, I got to leave my family with something. Yeah. I don't want to be drunk driving, you know. And each time it was like something greater than me was watching out for me because there would be another body. And you were able to save that life? Some. Not all. We don't get to save everyone. No. But like I said, I don't... It wasn't by my doing. 
No, it's the higher I just column. happened to be the person there and was strong enough to pull. I will take no credit for any of that stuff because I had other thoughts. Understood. Just like the walk. It has nothing to do with me. You mind if we talk about the walk a little bit? Yeah. Shaky. Couldn't stand shaky. I know. The early days, you guys were not friends. No, we butted heads. You're both squatties, though. Well, I was one of the original original squatties. Original equipment. I was the last of the 12 to leave. And when I started, uh, when I was given the opportunity to start the Fit Pit, which I really believe they thought it was going to fail. I was there, it was. Four years before I got double knee replacement, my knees had just gone out again. So I was down there doing light duty, and they I started training people. I was down there, so one of the chiefs said, "Hey, we need something like this with someone with experience. Mm-hmm. Would you want to try it?" And I said, "Yeah." So they actually gave me like a forty by forty area in that five thousand square foot building, and then they gave me a hundred by hundred area. And the next thing you know, we're having competitions there and everything else. Trying to get them to let us do deadlifts, power <laughs> cleans, we use real weights. Yeah. It was a struggle, but I'm trying to tell them. I said, you guys put uh, uh, treadmills in every station, mm-hmm. but in 30 fucking years, I've never run on a fire scene. But, but I pick up a lot of shit all the time. <laughs> you're picking up shit and you're moving people no and matter I said, what. The rescues are the worst because for some reason they want to put, you know, kind of some of the sloppier some yeah. of the ones that aren't real he-men on the rescue, those poor bastards are carrying shit all day long and fat people. Yeah. And they're wondering why we get hurt backs. Why we have back injuries, knee injuries, neck yeah. injuries, you so, name it. So, you know, I, I learned through rehab and stuff that deadlifts, I didn't start deadlifting until I was 50 years old, and I had a broken back, started deadlifting and doing good mornings, and I've never had an issue with it since. I built enough muscle around it. And people would shake their head and go, oh, you're crazy. You're just going to be hurt. It's like, don't you understand? We're made of bones, muscle, and skin. Mm -hmm. If we don't build our muscle around these areas, it's bone on bone. And that's not good. No. And a lot of firemen don't understand that. It's not about looking good. It's about let's just train those areas that they won't get hurt. Make them stronger. Make them stronger. Absolutely. But Shaky, I know yeah. we got off track. Shaky, no, it's okay. Shaky used to come in yeah. when they do squad training. He said, boy, you're, you're fucking wasting. You've got all this knowledge, 18 years, and you're just up here training people. You're playing gym rat right now. Yeah, and I said, you don't know what I'm doing. He goes, well, what are you doing? I said, I'm giving back to the firehood. Said it's about time I give back, and I'd rather see guys healthier or stronger than you big fat fuckers walking around. I said, why don't you come up here, and we'll we'll work on it. I said, you come up here for a year, I'll go back on the squad and take your job. And what happened? He got sick. So you know we make it was is weird. It was like that power was putting us together, mm-hmm. and we started kidding with each other over that year, and. Uh, one day I came in, I'd been off, and I came up to train, and I saw him, and he started yelling at me, and he had lost like 50 pounds. Yeah. And I said, son, I said, I am so, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm sick. I said, what? He goes, I'm sick, I have cancer, will you help me? First time he ever said anything like that to me, and he broke down. 
And I said, bro, I'll do whatever I have to. And for the next two years, I fell head over heels in love with Shaky and his family. I mean, I'd wake up at four in the morning going, what can I do? Lord, what can I do? And then I started doing, I started squatting every day. Yeah. Just so he wouldn't have to be in pain alone. He talked about how much pain he was in. And the only thing I could think of is with my bad knees, if I squatted every day as heavy as I could every day. You share his pain. I share his pain. And he said, man, that's that's the nicest thing anyone's ever done. And I said, just don't tell anyone. And then someone saw me doing it and made the comment, man, don't be so selfish. Share it on Facebook. Share it. And we'll raise money. Mm-hmm. So that's how squatting for Shaky came around. Um where I squatted every day for almost 211 days. And on the 212th day, I had both knees replaced. Wow. But the blessing was, when I had both knees replaced, I was driving a vehicle within four four weeks. You were ready to go because you had they built said those muscles. They said my legs were so far ahead of anyone's they've ever replaced yeah. that whatever I did, they wished they could tell other people because my recovery was so quick. So that was just a blessing for doing something for him. So, little side note, um, not long before Shaky passed, I was working at the hospital that he would frequent when he had bad days. And I remember the first time I ever met him, and I didn't know him as Shaky, I knew him as Mr. Ravensway. And I was working as a tech in the ER, and something stood out when I walked by his room. And there was a brother in uniform in that room. There was a lieutenant in that room. There was actually later on a district chief, if I remember, in that room. And, and they had Orange County patches on their shirt. And I'm like, what the fuck's going on here? What's happening? You know, why, why are we so far away from Orange County? And when I, when I finally inquired as to what was going on, well, he comes in here every now and then he's sick. He's got pancreatic cancer. Mm. I, you, you hear the stories. You've seen the statistics. Shaky was one of the first people I ever met that had occupational cancer in this service. Wow. At 41, 42 years old? Yeah. He was young and full of life. I was just a few years behind him. Yeah. 35, 38, 39 years old. Yeah. And I remember going into his room, and the first words out of my mouth were, brother. And the second words were, what can I do for you? And I think wow. he realized he had a firefighter in that room at that point. Wow. Anytime I was working and he was there, I was there. And again, this is, I'm not saying this because I want recognition. I'm saying this because he, he had an impact on me. Yeah. He had an impact on a lot of people. He was, um, he was in that ER several times over several months and admitted on a lot of occasions and treated medically. I remember sitting in the room with him at times, you know, here and there, you know, after my shift, I'd stay for 20 or 30 minutes, just check on him, make sure he was okay. I didn't know what was going on in his family life at that time. I didn't know what was happening. And I found out a lot of things had changed not long before he passed away. That was not good. You know, things that shouldn't have ever happened to him. When we lost him, he may not have been my best friend or, or someone I knew for years, but it hurt worse than losing my own family. And then, not long afterwards, here you come. 
out of left field, out of nowhere, and you're walking for Shaky and JP. Hey, I didn't, I didn't plan that, and I had no clue what I was doing when that happened two years ago. But he, God put you in that path. He did. I mean, Shaky, I can remember that night. What happened was they moved back to Michigan to try to change things, yeah, get better, yeah. And his, and I'd go up and visit him, sure, because I, I, I promised him I'd be there till the end, and I was with him almost every day for a couple of years, and then. Uh, they moved up there and I hadn't seen him for a month and Lisa called and said, listen, I think he's only got two more days. He wants you here. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm on a plane tomorrow. I tried to get on that night and I couldn't. So I got on the next day, flew up there, got a one-way ticket and ended up staying 15 days he lasted. So I bathed him, I fed him, um, I built, uh, I said, I'll, I'll stay if you got things for me to do, but I'm yeah. not going to sit in the room and watch him die. So I had to I had to fence in an acre. So I dug the holes, fenced in the acre, in the snow in Michigan. <laughs> in yeah. Michigan. What an idiot. <laughs> no. But uh, I'd go out there every, I'd come in, eat breakfast with him, sit in the bed and we'd talk or pray or do something. I'd go out and work and at lunch I'd come in and I'd actually fall asleep in the bed with him, um, just resting. And then I'd go back out and work till dark. But um, I learned more about brotherhood with him than I ever thought I knew. You know, um, like I said, this last two years, the hardest part has been unlearning things I perceived most of my life. Yeah. You know, I got to understand my ego sucks. Not the bad ego, but even the good ego that I told you about that rather see me fail and dead than admit I have a problem. But shaky, I was out. His wife and daughter said, would you hang his gear? You know, I've hung gear before, but mm-hmm. when the guy's still alive, that's hard. So yeah. I'm out in the uh, garage hanging his gear, and that bastard walks out while I'm hanging it. He walked out? He walked out. So he sat down. He had a towel around him, a blanket, and uh, he starts crying a little bit. And he goes, are you okay? And I said, I'm fine. And then I came down off the ladder. I said, fuck, no, I'm not okay, shaky. I said, you're gone. And I'm in love with you, and you're leaving me, and that's why I'm hanging this stuff. You know, I was so glad that I was allowed to be honest. Yeah. Because that tough guy was still the same. I'm fine. And then finally it hit me. It's like God said, go be, go be truthful to him. I said, I'm not good. I said, I don't even know what to do. And he says, I'll be okay. He says, just please. He said, I feel like a failure because I'm a fireman for the state of Florida. I've left my family with nothing. And that broke my heart because I thought, holy shit, his last thoughts are he's a failure. I remember growing up thinking I'm a failure. But to die that way? No. And so he gave me his helmet shield and he said, just promise me that you can make a change. And I said, yes, I will. And then after that, I had no clue what that yes, I will meant. What happened was uh, I stayed with him. Mm -hmm. I had my hand on his foot when he took his last breath. And I tell you, that was one of the hardest. I've watched my parents die. I counted their last breaths. They, you know, my dad was young. My mom was in her 80s, but it was their time. But not be able to reach out and help him. Not shaking. 
and his daughters were screaming and it was like total chaos and I'm like what do I do so once all that got done I went home with this helmet shield JP had started calling me and says I need you here with me Mm -hmm. I'm dying and I said there ain't no way so that was right after Shaky passed away yeah my mom had passed away a couple months before that so I'd leave work and go see her and the treatment or uh and the home she was in, and then I'd go back to work and go to Shakey's. Mm-hmm. So it was an a, a all-revolving door, it seemed like, for about a year there. And JP knew that my goal was to walk the Trail of Tears. Mm-hmm. If you've never heard about that, it was back in the 1800s when America again fucked up the Indians, ran them out of their homes, and made them walk from Georgia, South Carolina, Alabama, all the way to Oklahoma in the winter. 800 miles, and it killed a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Never learned about that in our history. Well, I read it. I read the story, and I met the Indian, the author. Really? And I said, man, are, are white people allowed to do this? And he goes, by all means, but no one has. And I was embarrassed. That no one has from That our... we let that happen. Yeah. So my goal was, when I retired, was to take a few months and walk it. Mm-hmm. And JP was going to go part-time with me. So there's pictures on Facebook when we watched a movie with JP. One of his last switches is to watch Only the Brave. Mm-hmm. And James Gearing got the movie for him. So we watched it. Everyone left. He asked me to stay. I went back in the house with him. And he goes, Bull, I've been thinking. He goes, um, no one else will do this, but I think you will. And you'll, I have a feeling that you would rather that uh he said instead of walking the trail of tears i believe if you walk the state of florida something big will happen two days later he's dead so now here i am he had given there's a picture of him giving me his helmet shield right after shaky gave me his Mm -hmm. i'm walking around with a backpack with both of them zip tied on there someone said post pictures of it and i'm thinking i don't want to post it so i did Next thing I know, someone else calls me and says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just honoring these guys, trying to figure out what to do. And it was like, can you carry my father? Can you carry this? Can you carry that? And within four months' time, um, four months from that date, I got dropped off on the zero-mile marker of the keys because I knew I was waking up sweating and in nightmares, remembering guys I didn't go to their funerals because I didn't want to be weakling. So I started taking pictures of these guys. I had 20 of them that I didn't go to funerals. I started taking their pictures out and posting them on my garage wall when I'd work out. And I tell you the truth, Jason, I didn't remember them as dead anymore. I remembered them as friends Yeah. from taking those pictures out. Yeah. And we think we're supposed to stuff them. No. And so all this, you know, I started talking. I said, you know what? I just need to start walking. I don't know how far I got. I got a bad back, I got fake knees, and uh, I had a guy take me down there, and that started the 50-day walk. Um, as you know, when my the first eight to 10 days, I was completely alone in the walk. Yeah. Figured I was going crazy. Family, friends, people I'd known 30 years were leaving me. Mm-hmm. Couldn't even talk to them anymore because they thought I was going crazy. And uh, Miami, Miami-Dade found me, 
got me out and I said, I'll never look at a map again on this whole journey if you get me to the next department. And from the whole way to Tallahassee, I never looked at a map. One department to the next department, to the next, to the to next, the next. department picked up. I fell in love with the, the brotherhood. But it's funny, that's where the firehood came from because I'd hear sisterhood, brotherhood, blackhood, whitehood, gayhood, straight, you know. And it's like, man, we're just one thing. We're the firehood. We're the firehood. So let's talk about that. Because the walk inspired you in a way to possibly put this, this effort forward to make this happen. I saw there was a lot, there was a lot that, that, that wasn't, that wasn't true. Okay. You know, so many people were probably like me that you're stuck in your one department at the one or two stations and the firehood's dead. The mm -hmm. fire, the brotherhood's dead. I got to that point after 30 something years that it ain't the same. It's no good. Let me get out of here. Well, during that walk. I saw the truth was it's fully alive and functioning. These guys took care of a total stranger. But where's the connection from department to department to department? Well, that's what I think. I'm not going to say. You know? Some crazy old guy walking. It's you. I'll say it. I don't okay. care. I'm going to say it. So what I learned, too, is that, you know, what people didn't understand is my whole goal was to keep a promise. And you did. I wasn't trying to get a bill passed. I wasn't. And as I went, I started hearing lies after lies after lies from fire departments to legislators about this whole mess. Mm -hmm. And it was just, we need to do something. Because the families of the firemen are being left with nothing. Every fireman I talked to that was dying didn't care if anyone showed up to a funeral. Mm -hmm. They cared if their family would be taken care of, which none of their families were being taken care of. But what I learned, too, is while walking, I met 100, 150-something widows, mm -hmm. and almost half of those were from suicide. It's a whole and other epidemic. And I knew epidemic. something about suicide. I knew stuff about alcoholism, and that just touched my heart because you would think at my age I'd understand that and eh, there's suicide every now and then in the mm -hmm. fire service but it's an epidemic it is unbelievable how much there is and how well it's hidden so well hidden we were under 40 or under 60 last year for line of duty deaths we were more than likely double if not triple that in suicides and a lot of them go unreported because yeah they don't even keep count of how many or what they are. Yeah. We lost two recently in Florida yeah. this past year. A young man from Marion County, just a stone's throw away from my station, and our brother in Boynton Beach. Yeah. Who's speaking for them? Who's speaking for their family at this point? Well, we're trying. Exactly. And what I'm learning is that I don't want to just count on the government. I don't want to just count on... Uh, the treatment centers. Mm -hmm. I just don't want to count on doctors and all that because I believe we have a responsibility to our own. Mm -hmm. So, granted, I believe in treatment centers. I went to one. A lot of firemen need that. Yeah. But they also need 
to have a daily reprieve, which means you're not going to go there and be cured, which means when you leave there, there's still work to do, just like an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So my goal is to start these workshops and retreats, not just a seminar like I'm doing in February. Mm-hmm. That's a one-day thing. What I want to do is take eight to ten guys, eight to ten girls at different times, and take them through the 12 steps. But our goal is to go a four-day retreat. Right now I have a place in Appalachia, and I want to go to very poor, deprived areas. And then we do service work with the individuals that live in that community two mm-hmm. to three hours a day mm-hmm. and then each day we do two or three steps it takes a while for people to go through this but what it does when you leave there you have a, a working bag of tools that you can use every day but what's more important to me is that each of these guys if they want to keep their emotional sobriety is we can start little groups in either departments or towns all over to where it's free for them to go to. You know, when I left the treatment center 20 years ago, it was a list of phone numbers and it was a list of uh, uh, triggers, relapse warnings. And I looked at those and checked all 200 of those fuckers. And I said, I'm gonna die. Everything on here is a trigger for me. Self-destruct mechanism. Yes. So a man told me, you start going to meetings, going to meetings every day, but mainly practice the principles that you're taught every day. Learn to practice what you're told to do, and you'll have a happy, free life. And that was the truth. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that I had a list of warning signs, because if I did that, uh, I would be thinking about it all day long instead of living. So my goal is that if we can teach these steps to people and they have a working knowledge of what to do, then each of them can go home and when there's a brother or sister in trouble, we can start these meetings to where they're free. Mm -hmm. So the treatment centers don't have to worry about all the follow-up because it's hard for them to do that. We automatically have follow-up in place. When they come home, we can help each other. I think that's the missing point is that we're counting on everyone else to do it for us. Instead of us taking care of our own. It's called a brotherhood for a reason. Or the fire And we hood. dropped the ball. Or the firehood, as yes. you like to call it. The firehood. We dropped the ball on each other. Uh, you know, I've had people get mad at me because uh, some of the funerals I haven't gone to. And I try to tell them, look, at a funeral isn't brotherhood. A funeral is pomp and circumstance. We go there, we have an excuse to drink and talk about how great that person was. Mm-hmm. The fire, The brotherhood starts before the funeral and after the funeral, when that family needs you. Every fireman I've talked to doesn't care if you show up for the funeral. They want to make sure your family is taking care of my family. Yeah. And we have failed miserably. Because every widow I talk to, not one has said anything but within four, three to four to five months, I haven't talked to another fireman since. we got to stop using the term if we're not going to walk the walk and talk the talk at the same well, time. Well, it's become just a word. You know, the brotherhood is action. It's all about action. You know, these widows, what I have found out, I hate even calling them that, is that if I text them once a week, I love you. Mm-hmm. I don't even ask them how they're doing, you know, because then that starts something else. I love you, thinking about you. They are overjoyed. Invite them to, hey, let's go have lunch. 
let's go do this, let's go do that. Mm-hmm. And I've learned to always say I have no clue what you're going through. Because as soon as I, uh, I've heard people say, yeah, I understand, they break down because if you haven't been through it, how do you understand? You can't understand, and then they're going to dump on you potentially, and you're not ready. No. You're not ready to receive that. You're not ready to respond to that. You don't know how to process that. No. But imagine 10 years, 20 years with an outsider being a, a wife or a husband of a fireman and looking at it, how much they love the camaraderie, and then yeah. all of a sudden it being it's cut gone. off. You've already lost your spouse. Now you're losing your family. It's an injustice to our service is what it is. It's a lie. We're all living lies. And I can understand family goes on. I mean, life goes on. Sure. But you know what? It takes five seconds to send a text. Yeah. And be honest. Like, I tell them, everyone, I I guess, got together with two ladies last week for a half hour. Ended up being four hours at a place. And, you know, when I first got there, I said, I I really don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. I have, I I don't know what to say. But, you know, I've learned something. Sometimes just being there to listen is far better Absolutely. than saying anything at all. I'm an uncomfortable person sometimes when I don't get to talk because I want to talk. I want to feel like I can have an impact. And that's my own selfishness sometimes thinking that way, my own ego thinking that way. But the reality of it is you got to swallow that fucking ego and you got to say, you know what, they need you to hear them Yeah. and not worry about saying anything to them because that can have a bigger and better impact overall. Absolutely. I learned with Shaky too, you know, about this brotherhood thing is that I'd go there some days and it got got to be, you know, after the first few weeks I got used to it, we'd sit there and he'd fall asleep. Mm-hmm. He'd sit there for hours and he'd just sleep. But when he woke up, I was sitting there watching TV or I'd be asleep. And his wife would tell me later that he needed that more than anything. That that emotion, that feeling that you were right there with him, it comforted him. I guess. And that's exactly what you were there to do. Yeah. And see, I just lucked into this stuff. Yeah. Because I didn't know what I was doing. But since I've learned this, this is why I want to share it with other people. So the first program's coming up. Uh, the first one's a seminar February 8th at the Orlando Union Hall. Okay. Yeah. The effects of... PTSD on the family and the person. So uh, the first um, clinical um, people we have is the IAFF, the lady that runs it, Dr. Abby. Okay. She's going to speak on their experience, which my goal is every time we do this, every three to six months, is have a different treatment center speak because we need them. You know, I, I can't just pick one. I, I have to have a levy of stuff for guys to choose from. All hands on deck. And then Joe Terry, which is phenomenal story. Um, she was married 32 years to assistant chief. He walked away one night. Mm-hmm. She found out the next morning that he had killed himself that night. 32 years, she had no clue. Wow. And then I have a couple of fire chiefs coming in to give information to the people there on how to go through the system. Mm-hmm. If you have problems or think you have problems, this is what you do. A lot of the phone calls I get from guys, like I said, I've got guys calling me up, go, I got a gun to my head. And you, you help me. You said earlier, just because of posts you've made on Facebook, you've got my messages. alcoholism and yeah. stuff. Yeah. 
that guys have sent messages to you and said, look, I was ready to pull the trigger, literally gun yeah. to my head. Now what do I do? I can't afford this, this, and that. So the fire departments, you know, these guys are going to tell them what their departments do, mm-hmm. who to go see, who to go where. What I'm hoping we can do as the foundation and what we've started to do is that if you can't afford it, we'll put you on a plane and send you to the treatment center. Okay. If you need a truck payment paid, we'll pay your truck payment. You're there at the treatment center to get treatment. Don't worry about what's going on at home. How can people connect with the foundation? Um, the website is thefirehoodfoundation.org. Um, there is a Firehood Foundation Facebook okay. and uh, Bulls Fit Pit on Facebook. I'll go ahead and share it on my page as well. We'll get it out there. Um, I don't know what to say. I, I think everything that we talked about the last hour and a half leading up to this 45 minutes is uh, all that needs to be said. Um, Tom, Bull, you're not alone. There are a lot of brothers out there that do want to stand by you and support you in any way you can to help make this happen, to make this change happen in our culture. And I want to thank you for being here this evening. I want to thank you for taking time to share yourself, be yourself, and not be afraid to tell the truth about mental health and wellness and the the stigmas and the problems that we're facing as a culture and a community and how we need to fix this, not just for the brotherhood, but for the firehood. Thank you. I appreciate the invite here. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, my friend. And that being said, guys, we're going to do... I'm going to shake your hand. I love you. I love (laughs) love you so much. We're going to wrap this one up. We've got another very special episode coming up with Marie Guma here. We've got this uh, series we're going to do on mental health and wellness, the impact of addiction, the impact of PTSD. This is a very important series because it's something that is directly impacting us today, right now. And if you need help, help is always there. So we're going to show you how to get to that point. All right. So as always, God bless. Keep your head on a swivel. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. You just survived 30 minutes of online training with the Can Man radio show. Did you remember to train your probie today? The Can Man knows. He knows everything. When that 2 a.m. lift assist drops, the Can Man will be thinking of you in his dreams.